Welcome to the Golden Mike Podcast, where personal growth simply isn't enough. I'm your host, Mark Cordone, a positive psychology coach, a do-gooder from the island of misfit toys who founded the Joy Revolution. Each week, I'll wrap with an extraordinary guest doing extraordinary things through their own revolutionary work to talk about the ups, downs, and all-arounds of life. It's my mission to provoke and empower you through increased joy and inspire you to spark your own revolution to change history for the better. Welcome to the most serious happiness podcast in this multiverse. Welcome to the Golden Mike Podcast. We're with Jimmy Jones, all right? So this is Jimmy Jones, man. Correct. That's me. You're going to mess up my intro already. Let's just even get started. I'm I'm with Jimmy Jones today, everybody. Uh, Jimmy Jones is a, he's going to be speaking in TEDx Ocala, uh, November the 7th. But more importantly, uh, Dr. Jones, Executive Vice President of the Islamic Seminary of America, Professor Emeritus of World Religions. And uh, he's most interested in looking at the sociocultural impact of prejudice and the intersection between sexism and religion. Huh. You think that would be relevant today? Where did you come up with that one? (laughs) Uh, Jimmy, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. It's great to have you, man. And and, uh, I can't wait to meet you in Ocala. And um, I I, want to go back here before we talk about, you know, these ostensible accolades that you have, right? And these are things that you work for. These are things that you're passionate about. And they're just offwellings of your passion, right? I'm curious about how you got to your passion because here we are, little Jimmy Jones in uh, Baltimore, Maryland and Roanoke, Virginia growing up. Can you, can you tell me what, what that was like growing up in, in both uh, Baltimore and Roanoke, Virginia, which had Jim Crow at the time that you were there? Well, first of all, I couldn't imagine what I'm doing today. There's no way, I mean, that anybody would have told little Jimmy Jones that he'd grow up to be a college professor or be uh, talking uh, with Mark on a podcast uh, about his life. I mean, this is unimaginable. I mean, the technology Mm -hmm. obviously wasn't there, but uh, I lived in the segregated South and uh, I had a very, very narrow view of what my options were at that particular time. And so because we were, we lived in a social cultural context that was determined by uh, the idea that blacks needed to be subjugated in order to protect the social order that came after the Civil War. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think this is where Jim Crow laws came from. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, um, unlike some other people, I wasn't born a revolutionary. I just thought that was the order of things. If you walk down the sidewalk and white people came down the sidewalk, you just moved out of the way. This is the natural thing. You deferred to them. Uh, and and, and so... So no no part of you in terms of growing up was was had any uh, kind of uh, uh, you know malcontent towards what the times were. It sounds like it, it just what it is or it was what it was for you. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, you know, it's the the point mm-hmm. is that when you live in a society that's structured around the color line, and yeah. everything is really uh, the the people who run everything are white. And the people who clean up everything are black. We just had that mm-hmm. recently with Obama mm-hmm. coming in. So 
but the point is is that when you look when you look at this kind of situation you you just don't think of you know an expanded world but the thing that you should also understand that somewhere along the line the people in my life particularly my cousin who raised me I wasn't raised in my uh, family of origin, primary family of origin, she got me to get the education bug when I was young. I, I have to attribute it to her. And mm. so uh, from a very, very early age, I was a bibliophile. I just okay. loved books. And I imagined that we had a little colored, because that's what we were called at the time. We weren't called black. We had a colored library, which is about uh, maybe three times the size of the room that I'm talking from now. It was a very small place. And uh, my my intention was, as a preteen, as a teen, was to read every book in that small Gainesboro branch colored library. Get it, I Jimmy didn't know Jones. anything about library <laughs> acquisitions. They were, as I was trying to read them, they were getting new books. Even even the colored library got new books. Okay. Okay. And, and, and I'm thinking we're going from reading uh, uh, action novels to Du Bois. I, I mean, mean I literally read everything. I uh, I was joking to some folks uh, in the Ted Ocala meetup we had on Zoom. That's all you do. You do it on Zoom these days. That I of like. Of course. I like. I look like books better than people because books are much more predictable and dependable than <laughs> people are. And and that's also true of me. This is, I'm talking about people. I'm not talking people. I'm talking about us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, and so I, this is a book I got when I was young, and quite frankly, uh, it is a major reason why uh, I ended up being a college professor because. Uh, uh, who you know? People love to send college professors free books. So, so what book or books did you read in that library? And boom, something changes. So your perspective changes, um, well, your identity changes. Like, do you remember one? Well, let me offer two. Uh, one okay. is when I was relatively young, and something called "The Miseducation of the Negro" by mm-hmm. Carter G. Woodson, which is a book published in the 1930s. Carter G. Woodson is known for establishing what was called Negro History Week when I was growing up. And then when we had the centennial, 70, uh, uh, bicentennial, we we called it uh, Black History Month or African American History Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the point is, is that the miseducation of Negro made the point, and this is a point that was very important to African American and colored people back then, is that he made the point that it was very important for us to see education as a way out of our current condition. But he bemoaned the fact that we knew very little, that is, colored people knew very little of our glorious history. Much of what we knew about ourselves (laughs) began with slavery. Uh, Completely. A big part of the narrative was removed or or not told. Not told, right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, then fast forward uh, a lot later, uh, when I went to, I went to a historically black college and university, a shout out to Hampton uh, University, oh, okay. one of the uh, historically black colleges and universities, which by the way, educate most, as far as best I can tell, educate most black professionals even today, even mm. in the days post Jim Crow. Uh, these mm-hmm. are very important educational institutions for our young up-and-coming leaders, and for leaders who become leaders uh, of in, in the general population. So I went to uh, Hampton University mm. in a whole new world. College changes things. Uh, books change things. College changes things. was opened up to me there. I met people from Africa. 
who were running countries, uh, who who's uh, who had PhDs, and I, I, I never thought about this thing growing up in, yeah. in Roanoke, Virginia. And I, uh, somewhere in the middle of that uh, college uh, education, I, 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 I like to go and listen to speakers. And I always thought I was a bright guy, you know, from reading books. <laughs> you read a book, you know everything. Um, so, so I, you know, I went and looked and listened to this guy named Stokely Carmichael, who died, okay. uh, Kwame Ture. He changed his name and he moved to Africa. But anyway, his name was Stokely Carmichael. And he asked us, what, uh, we, we, we called ourselves Hampton uh, Institute at that time, now Hampton University, called mm-hmm. ourselves the Cornell of the South. In other words, we were we were like Cornell in New York. The and Cornell so, of the South. We've never been it. to Cornell. I didn't know what the heck <laughs> was. But, you know, we, we prided ourselves in being the Cornell. I don't, I don't know how Cornell had been chosen out of the hundreds of other uh, white people. <laughs> The point was, it was a white now, university. Now, now, by the way, are you taking shots over at at, at, at the Morehouse men and the Spellman women? No, 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 no. But this, this, this is the mindset that we had at that particular time. We wanted to emulate. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So it was to be the best is to be white. I mean, this is a very mm. strong and a very yeah. powerful message that was inculcated into us. In the racially segregated South, oh my and gosh. the North, by the way, at this time, I mean, the South is just more blatant about it; it's more subtle. In and the and you, you know what's really interesting is is uh, sort of uh, with immigrants as well. It was it was uh, uh, kind of indoctrinated in there to, um, and and it, it's uh, you know you know Asians are are sort of the honorary. Americans, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, when when my mom came to uh, the United States, she just put cream on me, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" And and it was skin lightening cream, and, and I was like, "Whoa!" And and it's it's just such a powerful thing in terms of um, uh, the way that we're 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 seen in society, um, wanting to be this sort of uh, uh, you know this uh, this archetype of of uh, uh, the status quo. Right. Well, it's small wonder. One of the first things that we did as a country, all this mm. is history, is we passed the Asian Exclusion Act. That yeah. Was not yeah. repealed until 1940s. Okay. Yeah. So we, we don't we don't have to, we don't have to dig in that too much, and we know about what happened during World War uh, World War Two. Yeah. Uh, with uh, uh, the internment of yeah the, the Japanese, camps Japanese yep. Japanese Americans not not Japanese yep. Japanese Americans uh, yep. by the same guy who a couple of years ago, who said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. I said, yeah. really? After after Pearl Harbor, this was <laughs> fear-mongering 101, right? I mean, <laughs> Complete yeah, fear-mongering. Right. So this is this is the world that we're living in, and this is the world that we Absolutely. have to understand. And this is a world that I, I don't I don't think it's a white and black world. I think it's no, a have-not world, that the haves... Yeah. Just want to manage the have-nots, and one of the ways you manage the have-nots is have them focus on this notion called race. You know yeah. that one the thing that makes people more important to, of them is if you belong to one race or another. So the second book that I read uh, was after Stokely Carmichael challenged me. I thought I was such a bright guy, and he he rattled off all these books I hadn't read. I said, "Oh wow!" and names I hadn't heard. And these were black people, right? Uh, who mm-hmm. of note, right? Who yeah. who done great things both within a, a black community and a broader community. And one book that he read 
he rattled off was relatively new at the time was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Ah, so okay. I grabbed it, and of course I read it, and my life was changed by it. Uh huh. <laughs> changed in two dramatic ways. Well, I would say three. Okay. Number one, uh, uh, all the stuff that folks had taught me about race and race relations was just wrong. You know, there's just I said, mm. oh wow, I was I was sort of upset. You know, when I read his story. And then sort of looked around me and saw confirmations of the way he was treated in that in that in that book. That's number one. Number two, um, uh, it, it it began my journey to becoming a Muslim because mm-hmm. uh, he died a Sunni Muslim, and mm-hmm. uh, as we Muslims say, "All praise to the God." I'm I'm one today. And number three, uh, his journey highlighted the importance of being a lifelong learner. Something mm-hmm. that I was already doing, but I didn't have a word for it until I watched him struggle. Uh, I read about him struggling with the dictionary in, in prison. I mean, here's a guy who debated at Oxford, right? And yeah. never went to college. He was he was a, he was he was a dropout. He yeah. never finished high school, but he was uh, one of the most articulate persons on the gro- globe. So, which right. means that you know, we we college professors aren't all that necessary after all. you you said it not me i mean but you know i i think aside from the fact that um uh higher education uh, higher education institutes could be debated that uh they were created for social compliance um there's a lot of power and good in 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 um and even revolutionary um uh uh, things that uh, in terms of, of 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 the power of an education, um, it, it it is uh, it, it is a travesty that that entire narratives. I mean, entire narratives are taken out of uh, what is uh, what we we think of as uh, American uh, history. Right. Um, totally or a uh, totally omitted, uh, omitted. I mean, we're naturally going to go there because because of the times. Right. Um, but but um, uh, with 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 everything that's been sort of uh, building and it's been building and it's been building um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Probably, uh, to me, one of the, the most uh, salient movements uh, and and uh, sustaining movements that I've seen in a while. I've 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 seen people gather before, but uh, this one really feels like a movement. And, and I want to know your take on that one. Well, this uh, the notion that Black Lives Matter comes mm-hmm. from the the history of the United States when we began with uh, the Declaration of Independence and. Uh, the Constitution of the United States, my forebears were three-fifths of a person, and we really yeah. weren't counted as persons. Nobody thought about us voting, and nobody thought about us being equal to white people at that particular time. That's number one. And then when we passed the naturalization law, the immigration, the first naturalization law, I got to drink some water, um, we, uh, we said, uh, you know, naturalization was open to free white people. Well, there you go mm-hmm. again. And then mm-hmm. what, what really dramatically changed, I mean, so w- black lives did not matter at the beginning in, in, in a legal sense. Let's uh, set aside the police-involved shootings for mm-hmm. the moment. 
they didn't and i mean given given the uh the examples you just gave it 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 was more so a secondary thing and and more of a benefit for for uh the white person um uh, but not every white person okay but not everyone okay so if people want to understand uh why it's haves and has not because at this time uh jews were not white italians weren't white yeah right irish were not white these they were not white people at the yeah. time of the found people need to understand this and so yeah. this is a shifting identity that has to do with the social political context of the time and the immigration at the particular time so sure. so you got the constitution uh you got the uh naturalization laws and then you got this thing called the civil war the bloodiest uh yeah i mean six hundred thousand people man i mean yeah. it was you know really uh, uh, murdered on both sides uh, in this yeah. war, and but the point is, is that after this, six million uh, pe- formerly enslaved people were let loose. In the United States, well, we weren't really weren't let loose because because <laughs> this thing <laughs> called sharecropping and all kinds of things that were going on that sort of kept us in check. And the Jim Crow laws that brings us up. Mm-hmm. So, so black lives. So it's it's no you know then the lynching. If you look at the equal justice initiative, look it up with Brian Stevenson, the work that, that he's doing uh, with lynching in the United States, where uh, hundreds and thousands of, of, of black people were lynched simply for being black, along with Jewish people, along with Italian people, where, and along with Catholics, by the way. Uh, mm. So this, this is the context where you need to understand. And, and the people saying Black Lives Matter, they need to, this is one of the reasons I'm doing the TED Talk, they mm-hmm. need to understand this history and understand that yeah. the oppression and the the trauma that black people feel and uh, the murderous uh, activities aimed at them were not only aimed at black people over time. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't focus on Black Lives Matter, but you shouldn't silo yourself uh, mm. and pretend as if the only thing that's going on after the Civil War and the run-up to the Civil Rights Movement is the oppression of black people. There's a yeah. little movement called the Eugenics Movement that was going on at the time that inspired Adolf Hitler. That, that mm. this is history. This is not. This is not a debatable fact. That yeah. at the turn of the century, there was a movement to improve the race, and there was a famous court case called Buck versus Bell in 1927 that involved a young poor white woman in Charlottesville, Virginia, not far from where I grew up, in 1927 who was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great liberal justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, who said famously uh, in 1927, I think it was May, he said uh, three generations of imbeciles are are enough. All right, fine. I mean, in a sense, I mean, people say things, right? But this court ruling, this eight-to-one court ruling in 1927 led to the forcible sterilization of 60,000 Americans under the color of state law. 60,000 Americans 60, under the color 000. of state law. Wow. Yeah. Starting with institutionalized white people, starting with institutionalized white people. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's going to morph over to black and brown people, ultimately. And I like to talk about liberals like Martin Luther King used to talk about liberals, you know, white liberals. I mean, the state that, that, that sterilized the most was the liberal state of California? Okay. Yeah. So this is so so. Black Lives Matter is happening in that context, right? The yeah. have yeah. the have nots. And so if you can get people to focus on the color differences 
and you're in charge, we won't name names these days, but if you're in charge, if you can get people to focus on the color differences, you've won the day. We've seen this in recent history. You get people Absolutely. to focus on, I, I view the, the current uh, uprising about build that wall and the current Muslim ban and those notions as aimed at black and brown people, even though uh, everybody who comes from Latin America is not black or brown. They just aren't. I mean, exactly. Are, yeah. Right. And exactly. And all yeah. the Muslims are not black or brown, but in the public imagination, they are. You follow me? In the yes. public imagination. They are. So you, you put that together with the riots in the streets and we can't control those people in the streets in the inner city where I live, by the way, you know, it's talking about my neighborhood, right? Right. Uh, you see what I'm, t- I'm talking about. As long as you can keep people, you know, focus on this, Matt Jacobson in his book, Whiteness of a Different Color, calls the biological fiction called race. Mm. Then you, you got us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, I, I love that the fact that you're talking about haves and have nots can be anything, anything. Yeah. And, and so when, when you when you actually see the, the, the rioting in, in, in the streets, uh, whether you agree with it or not, it's what happens when have nots do not have an F to give anymore. But it, you know, let me let me just say this about yeah. that, because I mentioned this in my TED talk. So, so because you're outraged at the deaths of Breonna Taylor sure. and George Floyd, you, we do not have the right to lose our morals or our minds. I'm sorry. Just because you're angry, mm-hmm. you, know, you, don't, you don't have the right to lose your morals. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. have the right to lose your moral compass. You know, I, sure. you know I, when I came to New Haven about a half century ago, to go to law school, uh, there were riots in the streets in New Haven, right? And mm-hmm. I would say that those communities where the rioting was, when I go through the, those communities right now, I remember the riots. Because the people mm-hmm. who take it on the chin the most behind these, because because the uh, academics yeah. call these revolutions, you know, the academics call yeah. these revolutions. The, the yeah. people who take it on the chin because of these revolutions are the people who live in those neighborhoods, not yeah. the academics in their ivory towers. The yeah. same year, five years ago with Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Maryland, with that situation there. Yep. Hannah, that's yep. where I was born. I mean, Baltimore was devastated by that. People call this a revolution. I see what I say, a riot. This is what I mean by losing your rationality, right? This is irrational yeah. to call this a revolution because a revolution is something that makes a dramatic change in the status quo. No, yeah. yeah. There was a change in the status quo in Baltimore and in New Haven. Yeah, those neighborhoods were decimated and are still trying to recover it. Either 50 years later, in the case of Baltimore, five years later, the, uh, many of the people who lived in those neighborhoods are socially, culturally, and economically worse off because of the riots, right? And so mm-hmm. what I say, a riot is a riot. No matter who perpetrates it, starts it, or pers- participates in it, that you, you, yeah. it's, it's a riot. That's what it is. And we're not disrespecting black people when we call it a riot. When people are throwing Molotov cocktails, I don't. I live in the inner city. I don't want anybody coming through my street because they're mad about something that happened in Minneapolis tearing up my neighborhood. I just yeah. don't. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And the other point is that if you study history, this is what I mean, you don't, don't lose your rationality. Yeah. If you study history, the people who've rioted the most and the most deadly riots were perpetrated by people that we call white against people of color, often African-Americans, sometimes others Catholics, you know, whoever, whoever the target du jour 
was at that particular time. Du jour, du jour. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> yeah. so you know, they're, they're riots. And they, yeah, they work against our self-interest. They do. <laughs> Hey, it's Mark. I hope you're digging the Golden Mike podcast. If you have or are just starting your own revolution fueled by joy, there's a site I created for you. If you, like me, believe that personal growth is simply not enough, if you, like me, are committed to changing history for the better in both micro and macro ways, check out joyrevolution.com. In there, you'll find an archive of our over 200 Golden Mike Live Facebook shows and, of course, our podcast that you're currently listening to. Check out the blogs highlighting how positive psychology and joy theory apply to your everyday life. There's even some cool clips from our Joy Revolution course geared towards influencers, speakers, writers, and change agents. It's all there. Go to joyrevolution.com. That's joyrevolution.com. Let's get back to the episode. You know, I, I think uh, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think I was I, I was uh, kind of just explaining a, a sort of Alinsky stuff where, where it's like, where do you go from now? You know, and, and that's where but sometimes those things come up like that, you know, and I, I'm glad that you, you're speaking to sort of there's no reason for us to lose our ethics over this. Yeah, but um, we, we've had thoughtful yeah. models. We've had Martin Luther King. We've yeah. had Harriet Tubman. We had yeah. Frederick Douglass. We've had thoughtful models yeah. of what you do when you face deadly oppression. Thoughtful. Thoughtful. Yeah. Angry. Thoughtful. You yeah. challenged yeah. it. Yes. Yes. Frederick Douglass yeah. challenged his energy into learning how to read and write because he understood the power of reading and write. Harriet Tubman challenged the energy of going again and again into the South and liberating people and being part of the abolitionist movement and being a spy. You understand? I mean, yeah. not tearing up the South. I mean, this is what, I mean, and we call ourselves, you know, being true to our blackness. Come on. Mm, mm. Well, well, I think I, I think the one thread that makes uh, all of those uh, the, those folks that you talked about uh, sort of game changers is this disruptive energy that they had, and so you know the status quo actually be moving because of that disruptive force. And yes, we have we've had people that we can look up to uh, that uh, of, you know went about it in a different way. Well, I don't know about I don't know about you, but if 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 MLK were alive, I could see him supporting what's going on with the Black Lives Matter and with some of the things that, that we're seeing. Okay, so let, let, let's say uh, it depends on what you mean by supporting. Uh, yeah. what, all, what all three of these people had in common okay. uh, is that what I, they're called what I call synergistic mm. Mm. leaders, right? Synergistic mm -hmm. in the sense that the whole is equal to the more than the sum of its parts. Yep. All of these people mobilize Black people and white people and whoever else was around. In the case yeah. of slavery with Frederick Douglass and uh, with Harriet Tubman, they, 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 they were part of an abolitionist movement, right? Mm -hmm. This was a multicultural movement, and they moved people other than black people, right, at the same time. A lot of Absolutely. the rhetoric that you find in some Black Lives Matter people, uh, you know, is it, very soloing. This is our this is our time to talk to them. No, no, no. You, you would never find... Uh, uh, Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass saying that, or Martin Luther King saying this, for the, 
for that matter. So what I mean, so synergistic mm. visionary leaders. Vision, sure. what, what do I mean? That you don't allow the, the situation that is here and now cloud your vision for down the road. Martin, yeah. Martin King called it a beloved community, right? Yeah. And yeah. Martin Luther King was motivated by his spiritual focus on Christianity. If you read him closely, that yeah. was what motivated him. And therefore, he understand that all people were children of God. And so yeah. therefore, he, he when when the famous Montgomery bus boycott, when they paralyzed uh, the city of Montgomery for over a year, you got it, Mark, just think about this for a year. This is before... This is before Snapchat and Facebook, right? <laughs> this, this was a couple of years before it, yeah. Right, right. This, is, this is, I mean, that they mobilized the entire black community of Montgomery, Alabama, not to ride the buses for a year. Mm. For a year. This is when people had party phones, party line phones. I remember you pick up the phone, somebody <laughs> talking on the phone, right? Literally. People, the, uh, people like the women involved in the movement, because the women were the engine for the movement, as they often are. The women mm-hmm. involved in the movement, the, the weekend before that, I mean, I've, I've forgotten the number, but it was thousands, like 30,000 yeah. mimeograph. I don't know. You don't know what a mimeograph machine is, Mark, do you? A mimeograph yeah. machine is a drum uh, that has ink on it. It's a round drum that you turn it and papers go are fed into it to make flyers, and if you get ink on your hands or your clothes, you can't wear them anymore. It sounds like a ditto machine. Right. That's the same idea. 30,000 of those were printed off in order to keep colored people from riding those buses for a year. You you understand me? This is synergistic in a sense, and it wasn't just colored people. They marshaled in the deep south, right? Montgomery, Alabama, there's martial white people on their sides too. If you, if, if your listeners get a chance, look at Eyes on a Prize. This is a series, a PDF series done by somebody that I knew uh, before he died. Uh, Eyes on a Prize. You watch it, and, and it's about 15, 20 of it. And these are first person accounts on how these things happen. So you have to be synergistic in the sense that you're going to mobilize a variety of people around the agenda. Mm. And you don't yeah. mobilize them by demonizing all white people or demonizing yeah. all police officers. You, 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 yeah. just, you just don't, right? Yeah, or demonize absolutely. the black person who disagrees with you. This is not yeah. this is not how it's done. And so when Martin Luther King went into the city, they had four steps. I don't know if I can remember or not, but it's famous <laughs> in the letter from the Birmingham jail, right? First thing is they would do their homework. They would try yeah. to look at what the situation was. The second thing they would do is negotiate with people. They wouldn't go first, uh, get in the streets and get in people's face and say, we demand thus and so, before even talking to the people, really? So sometimes you might find out that people might talk to you and give you what you want. Trust me. Anyway, Mm. the third thing they would do is something called self-purification. That is, uh, and someone was writing about this the other day. The point is, is that they had workshops so people would understand what nonviolence meant in word and violent communicant, right? Yeah. They would have people, you know, treat them uh, in the way that they would be treated in the streets, right? So th- this, yeah. is, these are people who have a vision and have a notion of where they are and what what their moral compass is, right? Their moral compass is not about destroying the other side. King eloquently talks about this. It's about bringing in God's king. King was a Christian, I'm Muslim, but King talked about bringing in God's justice, right? That was the and, yeah. and he didn't want to harm anybody. In the meantime, if you read any of his writings, he he really concerned about this. 
So it's synergistic visionary leadership, and I do mean leadership, not celebrity ship. <laughs> I do mean leadership, you know? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm when you put it in that context, comparatively, um, it, it, it's almost like the the uh, you know the 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 prior movements, uh, the synergistic movements, uh, uh, you could have controversy with civility. Right. And um, uh, it's you know I'm not trying to load this question, but like I think from an observational standpoint, it's almost like us versus them this time around. Yeah, is, and, and, am I getting that right? Right, it, it's us versus them, but a different us versus them. For mm. King, uh, and for let's go back to Harriet Tubman, and mm-hmm. I believe I don't know Frederick Douglass' work as much, but okay. that that they were against evil. That's very mm. different. That's very different from being against white people. I'm against yeah. evil, no matter who yeah. does. Uh, uh, Malcolm X family uh, famously said at the end of his autobiography. Uh, he said, he wrote, actually, or with, with the help of Alex Haley, of course. He said, I'm for truth no matter who speaks it. I'm for justice no matter who's for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost. And as such, I'm for whomever or whatever benefits humanity as a whole. That's a visionary leader. Yeah, I think you can drop the mic and move on after saying something <laughs> like that, penning uh, something like that. that. In the lot of my yeah. <laughs> so, so I I know that your talk is going to be Black Lives Matter because because all lives matter, and Absolutely. without giving without giving the, the talk because uh, we want to see it there fresh yeah. on the on the seventh. Um, talk to me about a couple a couple of the points, uh, maybe a couple of uh, points that that you're going to illuminate um, um, during yeah. the talk. So we have some narratives about race in this country that we just yeah. love. We just love English speaking people just love to talk about race as if it were something <laughs> essential, right? As if it said something about people, right? I mean, the, we we are fond of talking about the black race, the white race, the Asian race, the right. red race, as if all these people that we call red are culturally the same. As exactly. if all the people we call Asian are culturally the same. As if all the black people we, we call black are culturally the same. This is just absurd. And by the way, if you, go to the, if you go to the continent of Asia and you say you're Asian, people will be like, what are you? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> there's, a, there's no such thing as Asian. Exactly. You know? So, so yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep, you Europeans name these continents anyway. Yeah, so yeah. Part of my point is we just love to talk about it as yeah. if it's something essential and, and that you've said something uh, that's definitive about people. And you really haven't, particularly given the change in racial dynamics and social economic dynamics over the last hundred, half century. Yeah. So that, that's one thing we're going to talk about. The other thing I want to talk about is that we need to understand, as I, I've touched on before, that Black Lives Matter. Right? Yeah is connected to the safety and security of every person in this country. I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe that Black Lives Matter. And why do I believe that? It's because my son, Malik Jones, was killed in 1997 in April by a police officer, right? Mm-hmm. And so and this is in the talk, right? But uh, uh, killed by a police officer. And one of the first things I did was call 
the uh, a couple of weeks after it, but this was such a shock. I mean, a police officer killed my son. My tax dollars killing my son, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The first things I did within two weeks was call the chief of police of the city where the officer was employed and the head of police commission. I asked them one question, and I also uh, gave them some advice. The yeah. question I asked both of them at separate times was, "Do you have anybody in your uh, family?" who, particularly a young man, was the same age as Malik. And both of them answered in the affirmative. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I I want you to understand that if you circle the wagons as uh, police departments and cities often do and defend themselves at any cost in the wake of uh, my my son's killing ended at the end of a traffic stop where a police officer traced him from one city to another. If, if If you defend the idea that, that this is good police tactics to somehow chase person, you know, 15, 20 miles with traffic stop and then run up to the car and bang the window, uh, the, uh, bang the, the window out with the butt of your gun and then pump five, six or seven bullets into a human being at close range. This is something mm-hmm. you see in the cowboy movies. You don't see this in police academies. This is not something mm-hmm. that, that people are taught. So I, I said, I said this to them, right? I said, yeah. if you, Cover this up. This is what I said to them. If you cover this up, the streets will be less safe for everybody. Because the message you're sending to that police officer and other police officers is that that kind of behavior is okay. It's permissible. Right. Yeah. Less than a little more than two years later, Mark, in a, a city uh, that's very close, maybe 15, 20 miles from New Haven, it's called North Brantford, a white sure. woman, 40 years old named Virginia Cooper, was shot to death by a police officer who said his life was in danger, which is what the officer said with my son, as she was driving away. And I said, there you go. <laughs> she was driving away. Right, and she and- was driving away. Because I'm saying that if you, to the extent that you, people need to understand that these things are connected. And in the newspaper, the Hartford Current newspaper, local newspaper here, wrote about it, and they compared it to Malik's shooting. Right. Mm-hmm. And my point is, to me, I draw a line between the two. So if it's OK for a police officer to rush a car, bang the window out and kill somebody, it just happens to be a black male this time. Trust me, that's going to be part of the culture. Yep. And within a couple yep. of years, it's a white woman driving away and she shot to death. The, the difference in handling is just is not in the speech. It's amazing. For First of all. It became a black-white issues in marches, right, with Malik, right? And it led to yeah. some, some, some changes. With the, the woman, you know what happened? The city settled with her family. Uh, my, uh, my wife, my ex-wife sued the city of, uh, of uh, East Haven and ultimately lost. In that okay. case, the city settled with the family, right, for whatever, you know, 1.1 million, whatever they settled with the family. And nobody even, people hardly even know her name. Right. They don't know her name. They know they know Malik Jones's name because of the sure. racial animus. And so this is this is what I mean by we, we, we love this concept of race. We love it so much. Right. It, it frames our view of the world in a way that's detrimental to our common good. That's my point.
Yeah, I, I'm almost hearing this Black Lives Matter because all lives matter um, through that story. And it's almost like a, an invisible tapestry that's interwoven with each other. Like one thing, like, uh, you know, one thing that's permissible uh, will will lead to another thing. And, and right. we're all unsafe. Right. Um, it, it, it's, you know, um, I, I think that it's an absolutely fascinating um, uh, way of talking to it, and and um, of still, my condolences to your son and your family, my friend. We've been on for forty minutes straight, and like you have not like there there is smoke coming from my earphones right now. <laughs> like I I'm, I'm loving this, and I want to save some of it for TEDx Ocala on the seventh. But um, I I do want to to go into the bonus round with you, um, be, because uh you know uh <laughs> believe it or not we're on the we're on the charts for for spirituality, mm-hmm. and um I, I want I want to hear what you how you embody joy and so i'm gonna i'm gonna say a question uh and i want you to finish it off and then we'll go to the next one all right so so the first one is joy tastes like watermelon (laughs) that's so stereotypical joy tastes like is sweet uh, it's mm. nutritious. It doesn't it doesn't contain any extra chemicals, mm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you can you can have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You you mm-hmm. really can without destroying your body. There you go. That abundance. <laughs> yeah. That abundance. Let the yeah. cup floweth over. Yeah. I'm a look. I'm looking over to Joe Fern. Remember Joe Fern. Joe Fern's the judge of this. Joe Fern, do you get? Yes, Joe Fern gives you one point for that. <laughs> so we're gonna go to the next question. Joy sounds like. Uh, the Adhan. Uh, I'm a Muslim, mm-hmm. and I I travel a lot uh, around the world. And when I hear the Adhan, the call to prayer, mm-hmm. uh, that lifts my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, very briefly, it's it, it's in Arabic. Every place, Bosnia, Bahrain, uh, every place I've been is in Arabic. In uh, Mumbai, India, it's in mm-hmm. Arabic, but with with whatever the with whatever the local lilt is. And it, it, it goes, God is the greater, God is greater. I bear witness there's no God but God. Muhammad's message of God. Come to prayer, mm. come to success. God is the greater, God is the greater. There's no God but God. Because joy centers me. Mm, love it love it don't even have to look at joe fern on that one he's given the yes um joy looks like looks like uh mitochondrial e uh, <laughs> this is uh not, there's a guy named richard dawkins uh who's yeah. a rabid yeah. atheist <laughs> He really is, man. He really doesn't have. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't have. He, he doesn't think. Uh, nope. He thinks us uh, believers are unhinged, right? So, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and uh, he he talks about mitochondrial Eve and the river out of uh, uh, Egypt as our common ancestor, right? Uh, mitochondria. Okay, I, I've never had mitochondria on the show before. Right, but <laughs> the, the Joe Joe Fern's going with it. Joe Fern's yeah. going with it. Yeah. Um, joy feels like tears <clears throat> because um, me, I've been blessed, and uh, there are a lot of people who've been blessed and don't know it. You know, <clears throat> when I look at uh, people I grew up with and people who live in the neighborhood that I live in right now, and 
and many of them don't know that they're blessed, and so they're mainly angry. And yeah. uh, I, I would urge them to take the blessing and go against the injustice. Mm. Don't go with the outrage. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes, says uh, Joe Fern. Joe Fern is saying yes and wiping a tear. Um, joy smells like. The, uh, the, the water don't, by the don't go! Don't go and give me a stereotypical like fried chicken or something. No, like, no, no, <laughs> no, the water by the sea. Uh, what? The oh, the water by the sea. Wow. wow. My wife is going to fall over when she hears this because she's always dragging me to the beach and I'm saying I don't want to go. But, oh, but don't amazing. Don't tell her that when I'm getting there, when I get there, I'm cool, you know? <laughs> I won't tell her. I'll let the recording tell her. Right. <laughs> so so um, part of the reason I do these um, interviews is to... to <laughs> to interview uh, people living the extraordinary, uh, people living the remarkable, um, people living their joy revolutions. And uh, I know that you have your academic way of talking about revolution, but um, I, I, I wanna know Jimmy's, Jimmy's uh, way of, of looking at revolutions. And there's two things. There's the revolution of the heart that happens on the inside, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, where we have that uplifting, we, we, we have that, that change uh, in perspective, change in consciousness through joy. And right. then there's also the revolution that you can lead with, with masses of people using synergistic disruptive energy. Right. Um, what is your joy revolution, Jimmy? Both. I mean, I, okay. I, I, in order to do the latter, I have to do a lot of the former. Mm. I, I, just, I, I have to work with my heart. And there are certain yeah. political leaders these days that really keep me working <laughs> on my heart. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if, if ever a time that we needed someone to help us work on our shadow selves, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because in, well, in our way of life as Muslims, we, we, we don't. We think it's a bad thing to have rancor in your heart against other human beings. Mm, it's mm -hmm. just a bad thing. I mean, because after all, they are your biological cousins from a spiritual and religion. From even Dawkins, the atheist, believes this, and the Quran affirms this. They're, they're our cousins, and with you, you, you should be able to look through a person's behavior, no matter how bad it is, and see their humanity. You should be able to. If, and if you can't, it means that you've lost a part of yours. I'm, I'm sorry. Mm. You, you have. Because, mm. listen, uh, something I learned in uh, segregated Roanoke, Virginia, uh, that stuck with me. Uh, I was raised uh, Southern Baptist, but uh, my, uh, my cousin, Mary Johnson, who raised mm -hmm. me, there's so much good in the worst of us. There's so much bad in the best of us. No. That it hardly no. behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us, mm. right? Mm. right? So, and, and there's a verse in the Quran that says, God made us of the highest of the highest, you know, and the mm -hmm. lowest of the low. And that works for me in my psychology is I have lofty ideas and then I have some low life ideas that I'm glad <laughs> that I, I don't have to say on your program. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I hope that that you can come back and, and talk sure. um, uh, the intersectionality of sexism and religion. Uh, that mm -hmm. totally, um, I, I, I hope we can talk about that. Sure. But 
best of luck at, um, in, in, in Ocala. I'll see you there. Um, right. and, and also at the same time, for those of you who are listening right now, those tickets will go fast. So you want to pick those up, um, where you can find, uh, TEDx tickets. I think it's TEDxOcala.com. Um, all of Jimmy's stuff is here in, in the show notes. So you can just click on that and stay in touch with, with Jimmy. Um, Jimmy, if there's one thing that I, I, I learned about today, um, is that I am, uh, committed to, uh, to being against evil versus a person and uh and if, if you would let me say it with you all praise to god well, i please, am man. one today alhamdulillah. <laughs> that's alhamdulillah is the arabic version okay Allah okay yeah okay so so thank for you, oh thank you and so uh so for your sake for my sake for goodness sake people start your revolution in light in love in shadows and enjoy it's jimmy and mark signing out we'll see you later i hope you enjoyed the golden mic podcast there's more good stuff coming your way but until the next episode let's stay in touch yes find us on instagram as the joy rev the joy rev or communicate with like-minded revolutionaries in our facebook group search the joy revolution underground and of course, don't forget to check out the classes, articles, blogs, and some serious fun at joyrevolution.com. That's joyrevolution.com. Now, until then, what will you do to change history for the better? Let's go out and play, shall we? Press start to begin.